2 Corinthians 13. This is the third time I'm coming to you. Every fact is to be confirmed by the testimony of two or three witnesses. I previously said when present the second time, and though now absent, I say in advance to those who have sinned in the past, and to all the rest as well, that if I come again, I will not spare anyone, since you are seeking for proof of the Christ who speaks in me, and who is not weak toward you, but mighty in you. For indeed, he was crucified because of weakness, yet he lives because of the power of God. For we also are weak in Him, yet we live with Him because of the power of God directed toward you. Test yourselves to see if you are in the faith. Examine yourselves. Or do you not recognize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you, unless indeed you fail the test? But I trust that you will realize that we ourselves do not fail the test. Now we pray to God that you do no wrong. Not that we ourselves may appear approved, but that you may do what is right, even though we may appear unapproved. For we can do nothing against the truth, but only for the truth. For we rejoice when we ourselves are weak, but you are strong. This we also pray for, that you be made complete. For this reason I am writing these things while absent so that when present I need not use severity in accordance with the authority which the Lord gave me for building up and not for tearing down. Finally, brethren, rejoice. Be made complete. Be comforted. Be like-minded. Live in peace. And the God of love and peace will be with you. Greet one another with a holy kiss. All the saints greet you. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Let's pray. Father, again, we gather together around your word and God, we pray that uh, we come with hearts and minds open to hear your truth and uh, to conform ourselves to it. We pray, God, that you would speak to us and that um, we would be ready to hear like little birds in a nest with a mouth open, God, that uh, we would be hungry. God, we thank you for what we've seen over the past months in this letter of Second Corinthians. And we pray, God, that the things that we've seen would not prove just to be um, information to be stored away for some other time, but God, that our view of what um, the ministry is, of what a Christian is, of how to respond to those who are struggling, and God, so many other things, that they would be impacted and changed by the example that we see lived before us by the Apostle Paul through the pages of this letter. God, we thank you that you've preserved it for us and that we um, not only have your word given to us by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, but we also have these uh, sections of Scripture in which Paul 
pours out his heart and reveals so much about his care and concern for the church. Father, we thank you for the body that you've given to us here. God, what a privilege it is to be a part of your bride. God, we pray that you would help us to esteem the church as we ought because we esteem you as we ought. And we pray, God, that our love for her would be a reflection of our love for you. God, we pray for the members that make up this body. We pray, God, that you would continue to establish us and strengthen us. Make us, God, to be zealous for our Lord. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I thought we might actually finish tonight, but we won't. We will look at the first ten verses, Lord willing. But there was too much in those last few verses to, uh, to really include it without just saying, there it is. So, um, we'll get to that hopefully next week. Tonight, though, as we look at these final ten verses, there is a final warning that Paul gives and kind of an ongoing hope. He has told them he's coming and I'm coming, I'm coming. And now he tells them one more time, I'm coming and I will not spare. And so there is uh, this, this final promise that he gives to them. And it's a promise in the form of a warning. There is a final exhortation or a proposition that he holds before them of hope. There's a prayer and there's also his purpose in writing. And we'll look at those things this evening as we consider this passage the first thing is the warning or this, this promise that he gives in the form of a warning that we see in the first four verses. And it really is that discipline is imminent if they do not repent. He writes to them, this is the third time I'm coming to you. His first visit to Corinth had been for the purpose of starting the church there. And he had done so. We see this in Acts chapter 18. And he writes to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 15 and says, For if you were to have countless tutors in Christ, yet you would not have many fathers. For in Christ Jesus I became your father through the gospel. And we see in a number of places where he talks to them as his children and relates to them as a father. He considers himself to be that. In 1 Corinthians chapter 9 and verse 1, he says, Am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? Are you not my work in the Lord? God, you are God's work through me. He brings the gospel to them. They hear it and receive it. And a church has begun. And so that was his first visit. And he stayed with them for about 18 months. Ministering to them and and helping them to get established. His second visit... Proved to be a painful visit. Many of the Corinthians attacked Paul. Or some Corinthians attacked Paul. Perhaps it was the false teachers or some of the people who were led astray by the false teachers. The rest of the people apparently remained silent and just watched. And no one stood up and defended him. And so rather than confront the problem immediately, Paul retreated and decided not to visit again for a while. He writes to them in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 23, about that. And as he writes there, part of their 
criticism of him, of him was that he kept changing his travel plans and maybe he, you couldn't really trust what he said. And he says there, I call God as witness to my soul that to spare you, I did not come again to Corinth. Now he tells them, I'm about to come again and I will not spare anyone. So he's waited on purpose, giving them time to repent, but they've had time now. And he's coming and when he comes, he will come to discipline if they have not repented. He also writes in 2 Corinthians chapter 2 and verse 1, I determined this for my own sake, that I would not come to you in sorrow again. His second visit had been a sorrowful visit, painful. He doesn't want it to be that again. He wants to find them repentant for their sake, for his sake. After his second visit, he wrote to them a letter. He refers to it in chapter 2 of this letter. It's a tearful letter. And he also sent Titus to see how they would respond. You'll remember that the majority of the people had repented. And Titus comes back with a good report. But there are still some holdouts. And so from chapter 10 through chapter 13 of 2 Corinthians, he specifically addresses them. And his language becomes much more pointed as he calls them to repent and warns them. You know, you, you want to see me bold. You really don't. <laughs> Paul, again, he now writes in preparation for this third visit. And he picks up a point that he introduced in chapter 12 and verse 14. Where he said, here for this third time I'm ready to come to you. And then there's almost like a parenthesis. And he picks up again here, this is the third time I'm coming to you. It's his desire to come and strengthen them. But if they've not repented, he promises that he will come to discipline them. And though he will come and discipline, he will not do so in an arbitrary way. And so as he continues in verse 1, he actually quotes from the Old Testament. Every fact is to be confirmed by the testimony of two or three witnesses. There are some people who understand that verse to be kind of an oblique reference to his visits. Two or three witnesses. I visited two times. This is going to be my third visit. And it's as if those visits are, visits are the witnesses. But that doesn't seem very natural to the text. And it doesn't really have anything to do with what the Old Testament was saying. He's quoting from... Several passages in the Old Testament that, that make reference to this. One is in Numbers 35.30. If anyone kills a person, the murderer shall be put to death at the evidence of witnesses. But no person shall be put to death on the testimony of one witness. In Deuteronomy 17.6. On the evidence of two witnesses or three witnesses, he who is to die shall be put to death. He shall not be put to death on the evidence of one witness. And again in chapter 19 and verse 15 of Deuteronomy. A single witness shall not rise up against a man on account of any iniquity or any sin which he has committed. On the evidence of two or three witnesses, a matter shall be confirmed. There's a lot of wisdom in that. Um, not only for the Old Testament, but, but for our own day. And sadly, you know, that's not always the case. There's necessary, it's necessary to have two or three witnesses. Uh, sometimes the, the accusation is enough, isn't it? Uh, especially in you know the kind of uh, the press. 
But this Old Testament principle is one that's brought directly into the New Testament by Christ. He tells us, he confirms it, if you will, by his own words, as if he had to. In kind of a, a, just a passing reference, he says in John 8, 17, as he is writing to the Pharisees, even in your law, it has been written that the testimony of two men is true. And then he talks to them about the testimony they've received concerning him. But to the church, in Matthew chapter 18 and verse 16, in the matter of church discipline, he says, if he does not listen to you, a brother who's sinning, if he does not listen to you, take one or two more with you, so that by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every fact may be confirmed. So he's bringing that principle from Deuteronomy into the New Testament and the church. Here's, here's how this would apply in this situation. Paul later takes the same thing and applies it to accusations against elders in 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 19. Do not receive an accusation against an elder except on the basis of two or three witnesses. Be easy for someone to make a, a spurious accusation. that has no merit. And if you receive every accusation like that, you can, you, know, you can ruin a person. And so here's a principle to hold. When Paul comes to Corinth to pass out judgment, he will not do so on unsubstantiated charges. He will not set aside the wisdom of God, though he has personally been affected. In fact, though he has personally been attacked, his desire is not retribution. It is that they repent with the goal of their restoration. And when he comes, while he will not arbitrarily judge, he does assure them that for those who have not repented, I will not spare. He doesn't spell out for us exactly what this means. We cannot, though, assume that it's a small thing. There are some uh, people who read that and think, well, really all they can do is, is tell them the truth. You know, possibly he can talk to the church at Corinth and excommunicate them, but really that's all he can do. And certainly in our culture, that doesn't seem to be a huge thing where, you know, you can leave one church and go to the next and they don't care why you came or where you came from. But I don't think that it's just that. I think there's more to it than that. His language, I will not spare, suggests that he will be prepared to be very stern in the exercise of his authority as an apostle of Christ Jesus. And he has an authority as an apostle that we don't have today. Remember in 1 Corinthians 5, in that situation of gross immorality, Paul told the church at Corinth, put him out. But he didn't just say that. He told them, to give this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh. While this would include excommunication, it is more than that, I believe. Apparently, it included Satan inflicting this man with some kind of disease from which he would die if he did not repent and be graciously restored by forgiving God. This man in Corinth was not the only person to receive this kind of apostolic discipline. In 1 Timothy 1.20, Paul wrote, warning Timothy about those like Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan so that they will be taught not to blaspheme. 
Again, we're not apostles. We've been given church discipline up to excommunication. But Paul was an apostle. But really, the point here, I think, is this. We, we could get caught up on that, and it's not necessary right here. The point's this. As we mentioned last week, Paul has been incredibly patient. Incredibly patient. Probably at least a year has passed. At the end of chapter 12, he mentions some sins he's afraid he's going to find there. And some, they're some of the same sins that we read about in 1 Corinthians. So he's waited. He's waited. But there is an end to patience. It's not that Paul has reached his breaking point. It's not that you know you pushed him too far. But it is that there comes a point where for the sake of the gospel, for the good of the church, sin has to be reckoned with. They've been warned. They've been warned. They've been called to repent. And if they will not, if they remain resolute in their sin, then it must be dealt with. Judgment has been delayed. When judgment is delayed, some people are tempted to think it's never coming. Some people profit from it. Some people don't. Some people decide judgment isn't coming. Everything remains the same since the beginning of the earth. Nothing changes. Where's the promise of His coming? Peter writes. And that's a foolish way to think. It's a dangerous thought. But because some people think that way, delayed judgment is not always a mercy. Sometimes it's a sign of wrath. Sometimes delayed judgment is wrath because the waiting, the forbearance, actually results in the opportunity for storing up more sin until the full measure of wrath is poured out. If delayed judgment is not always a sign of mercy, but sometimes of wrath, then we must also conclude that sharp, quick judgment is often a great mercy. We don't really welcome that idea, you know, especially if it's applied to me. <laughs> but it is a mercy of God when He disciplines His children and keeps us from greater sin. When He draws us back and says, no, don't go there. And He warns us in such a way that He gets our attention. It really is a mercy. And so when you think of some of the sharp judgments that occur in the New Testament for the church, they are mercies. Acts chapter 5, Ananias and Sapphira, you know, they both, they die for lying to the Holy Spirit. They, they grieve the Spirit and they drop dead. And what's the result? Great fear came upon all the church. You've got to think that when the next person comes with an offering, they're very careful about how they bring it. God tells us that it is His love that moves Him to discipline His children. It's not that He's being mean. That He enjoys, you know, the rod. 
It's for love. And when he lovingly disciplines us, it is a kindness from our Heavenly Father who treats us as his own. One other reason that Paul is so insistent that he will come and judge those who have not repented is because in mischaracterizing the nature of ministry in the New Testament, they have also mischaracterized the work of Christ. Verse 3 and 4, he says, Since you are seeking for proof of the Christ who speaks in me and who is not weak toward you but mighty in you, for indeed he was crucified because of weakness. Yet he lives because of the power of God, for we also are weak in him, yet we will live with him because of the power of God directed toward you. Now, the last thing he had said at the end of verse 2 is that if he comes, he, will, he won't spare anyone. Verse 3, since you are seeking for proof of the Christ who speaks in me. These ideas are connected. Their thinking was so twisted, so misdirected. That the idea of gentleness and meekness didn't mean much to them. What they were impressed with was manifestation of power. Even if that power exploited them. So in chapter 11 and verse 20, he says, You tolerate it if anyone enslaves you. Anyone devours you. Anyone takes advantage of you. Anyone exalts himself. Anyone hits you in the face. You tolerate this. Oh, there's power. But if they keep insisting on seeing a demonstration of power, they may not like what they see. I will not spare anyone. And they'll insist by refusing to repent. They want to seek proof of the Christ who speaks in me, he says in verse 3. And as a corrective to their twisted thinking, Paul reminds them that Christ is not weak toward you, but mighty in you. For indeed, he was crucified because of weakness, yet he lives because of the power of God. I think the point here is that both the cross and the resurrection both displayed God's power. Who but an all-powerful God could live out the weakness of the cross? Christ, taking on frail human flesh, was a testament to his power, not his, his frailty. As were his arrest and his beatings and his crucifixion and, and becoming sin and death. Christ's weakness was a necessary condition and evidence of his death. Christ's weakness was the platform from which his, his mighty resurrection took place. His weakness demonstrated his power. And Paul's own experience of weakness and power reflects that of Christ. End of verse 4, he says, For we also are weak in Him, yet we live with Him because of the power of God directed towards you. Now, there are some aspects of Resurrection power, we could say, that are operating in us today. I mean, we've been made alive in Christ. We have been raised with Him. And He is at work in us to make us a holy people. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 19 and 20. 
say um, that Paul prays that we would know what is the surpassing greatness of his power toward us who believe. And then he describes that power. These are in accordance with the working of the strength of his might, which he brought about in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. That demonstration of power made that be at work toward us who believe. So that kind of power is at work in the believer now. But surely there are many aspects of that power that we don't really experience until Christ returns, until we have resurrected bodies. Now, primarily God's power is displayed in Paul's weakness and in our own. So gentleness and meekness are not to be despised. If the Corinthians continued to despise it, if they failed to repent, then they would see God's power at work through the apostle in their discipline. Because this was a very real possibility, Paul called them to examine themselves. Verses 5 and 6. Test yourselves to see if you are in the faith. Examine yourselves. Or do you not recognize this about yourselves? That Jesus Christ is in you. Unless indeed you fail the test. But I trust that you will realize that we ourselves do not fail the test. The Corinthians had been scrutinizing Paul. Testing him if you will. Examining him. And they have found him wanting. He doesn't measure up to what they have decided is the standard of an apostle. Now, he calls them to examine themselves. Test yourself. Earlier, in 1 Corinthians 16, 13, he had told them to stand firm in the faith. But now, he tells them, make sure you are in the faith. And in the faith, he means the Christian faith. Make sure you are a Christian. The test here is simple. Is Jesus Christ in you? If you pass the test, the answer to that is yes. But to fail the test, the answer is no. Is he in you? Now there are places in Scripture where we're giving we're given um, tests that are perhaps more objective. Um, there are things, for instance, that we must believe. In 1 Corinthians 15, verses 1 through 4, Paul said, Now I make known to you, brethren, the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received, and which also you stand, by which also you are saved, if you hold fast the word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. There are things you must believe. If you don't believe them, then you're not in the faith. And then there are, are also the tests like we see in First John. Where he calls us to, to a commitment to doctrinal truth. There are, again, things you must believe. But also he calls us... To love for your brothers. How do you love God whom you've not seen when you don't love your brother that you have seen? And he calls us to obedience. 
But here, in chapter 13, the test is actually kind of subjective. Paul assumes that you will know if Christ is in you. Is he? Is Christ in you? Examine yourself. If they say no, it'd be kind of shocking. But it would also mean they don't have any ground to accuse him of anything. How can they say he's a false apostle? They don't even know Christ. If they say yes, he is in us. Then they should long to know the Christ of meekness and gentleness. Like Paul does. The one who died for them. And was raised for them. Like Paul. They should want to know his resurrection power certainly. But they should also want to know the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death. Also, if they say yes, then as the next verse says, they must admit that Paul himself has passed the test. He's the one who has led them to this crucified Christ. And they say, yes, Christ is in us. Well, here's your father in the faith. Are you going to say he doesn't know God? That he's not fit to be an apostle? But also, if they recognize that the meekness and gentleness of Christ are actually wonderful qualities by which they've come to know him, then they must recognize that about Paul also. So Paul's warned them with the promise that he will not spare. He's offered them, though, this hopeful exhortation. To examine themselves with the expectation that they will find that Jesus Christ is in you. Now he moves to his constant prayer, verses 7 through 9. I've already mentioned how we've seen previously his patience. It's seen here again. He's been criticized, humiliated, slandered, rejected. He could have just stopped praying for the Corinthians. His prayers for them could have changed drastically. You know, God, show those Corinthians. Vindicate me. But listen to how he prays for them. Here's, here's the substance of his prayer as he gives it to us in verse 7. Now we pray to God that you do no wrong. Basically, I believe he's praying that God will keep them from sin. That he will deliver them from evil. I pray that God would keep you from doing wrong. In other words, that you'll do right. Matthew Henry writes, This is the most desirable thing we can ask God, both for ourselves and for our friends, that we and they may do no evil. And it is most needful. That we often pray to God for the grace to keep us. Because without that, we cannot keep ourselves. Paul prays for friends, children in the faith. Keep them from wrong. Don't let them do wrong. And he doesn't ask God for this so that he will be proved right. 
God, you know I'm right. So fix them so everybody else will see I'm right. So they'll understand I'm right. Well, he does it because it's the right thing to do. He does it because it would glorify God. He does it because it's good for the Corinthians. He wants that for them, even if it makes him look wrong. What does that mean? There's a play on words here that's not obvious in the New American Standard. In verse 5, when he speaks about failing the test, and verse 6, I, I trust you'll see I don't fail the test. It's the same word behind that as is translated in verse 7 about being approved or not approved. Failing the test and being unapproved. To be approved is to pass the test. The ESV does a better job of, of using the same word in both places. So verse 7 in the ESV says it this way. We pray to God that you may do that you may not do wrong. Not that we may appear to have met the test or be approved, but that you may do what is right, though we may seem to have failed or be unapproved. Even if it appears that we have failed the test, and the test, by the way, is the Corinthians test, not Paul's own test about being a Christian. The Corinthians test about being fit to be an apostle and demonstrating power, even if it appears we've failed that test, we want you to do no wrong. We want you to do what's right. Now, if they don't do wrong, how would that make him seem to have failed? Well, he's promised to come in power. This is the third time I'm coming. And I'm not going to spare anyone. But if they've all repented, then there's no one to not spare. There's no exercise of power in discipline to be made. So he will fail that test. But he doesn't care if he fails that test. I would much rather find that you've repented. That you do no wrong. And if I don't get to exercise that authority in that way, that's quite all right with me. His desire is not to be severe. It's not to come and bear a rod, as he speaks of in 1 Corinthians. He wants to find that they have repented. And he reminds us of this again in verse 10 as he speaks of his purpose. And it is a purpose that we've seen already. It's a steadfast purpose throughout the letter. In fact, do you remember this from chapter 12, verse 19? He wrote to them, all this time you've been thinking that we're defending ourselves to you. Actually, it's in the sight of God that we've been speaking in Christ and all for your upbuilding, beloved. Everything we've said, even though you think I'm defending myself and trying to get in your good graces, really what I'm doing is trying to strengthen you. Well, in verse 10, he still insists he's been at work for their building up. For this reason, I'm writing these things while absent, so that when present, I need not use severity in accordance with the authority which the Lord gave me for building up and not 
for tearing down. This is the very reason, he says, that God has given me this kind of authority. It's not to come and and be severe. It's to build you up. So I'm writing to you so that I don't have to come and be severe. You know, he's been charged with writing hard things and then kind of being a softy when face to face. In a sense, it's true. And he likes it that way. I want to write the hard things to you so when I come to you, I don't have to say hard things. I want to come and find that you've repented and I don't have to be severe. That's not what I want to do. He'd expressed the idea back in chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. He said, I determined this for my own sake, that I would not come to you in sorrow again. For if I cause you sorrow, who then makes me glad but the one whom I made sorrowful? This is the very thing I wrote you, so that when I came, I would not have sorrow from those who ought to make me rejoice, having confidence in you all that my joy would be the joy of you all. I want to come and make you glad, and I want to be glad in you. I don't want to come and cause you sorrow and be sorrowful because you haven't repented, and I have to be hard. God had gifted Paul to build the church, not to be severe with it. The severity is only in response to sin that will not resolve itself otherwise. And so he wants to come and delight in them. His delight is not in yielding the rod or wielding the rod. It's the thing he said in verse 9 of chapter 13 here. We rejoice when we ourselves are weak, but you are strong. For this we also pray for, that you be made complete. And the completeness here, I believe, is the idea of they've repented. And the fellowship is restored with the Lord and with Paul. So that he comes and he does have joy. And they're joyful at his coming. We don't know the outcome of this letter. It's too bad there's not a third Corinthians to say, Hey, I came and it was all wonderful, you know. But in the wisdom of God, we don't get that. There are some small hints in the New Testament that would lead us to conclude that maybe they did repent. I'll give you one. In Romans chapter 15, verses 26 and 27. He writes, for Macedonia and Achaia have been pleased to make a contribution for the poor among the saints in Jerusalem. Yes, they were pleased to do so, and they are indebted to them. For if the Gentiles have shared in their spiritual things, they are indebted to minister to them also in material things. You remember chapter 8 and 9? He is reminding them of the the pledge they'd made. For this collection for the saints in Jerusalem. And if the rift continued. If he came and it was another awful visit. And he has to retreat again. Or if he comes and he disciplines. You have to wonder how ready they'd be. To send him on with money. For the saints in Jerusalem. But they do. And evidently gladly so. But other than that. And a few other little things like that. Were. We don't really know how it turned out. But the bigger question really is, how has this letter impacted you? We've spent 
almost 11 months in 2 Corinthians. And if we spend that much time looking at this letter and we go home the same, then that really would be awful. Second Corinthians is a real warning to the church. It's a warning about adopting the culture around us and bringing it into the church. The Corinthians had done that. It's a warning about leadership that's built around kind of a personality cult, you know. Um, the Corinthians were really impressed with some people. It warns us about making Christianity and church life about ourselves. Our feelings, our comfort, our health, our wealth. But there's also so much hope here. Uh, I've been impressed with a number of things, and I won't mention them all now. We might get to that next week. But uh, I've mentioned, I have mentioned his patience. But another, and I'll close with this, has been his confidence in the gospel. Paul repeatedly, as he, as he defends himself in the ministry of the new covenant, points to the fact that it actually transforms people. And his hope for the Corinthians is not that he can say anything magical and fix them. It's that if the Spirit of God lives in them, they will be transformed. It's impossible not to be. It is that much better than the Old Covenant, as glorious as the Old Covenant was. And that's the same hope that continues for us today, isn't it? If He dwells in us, if He abides in us, we cannot help but be transformed. Transformed.